0: This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Jennifer Cope, a medical epidemiologist at CDC. We'll be discussing trends in recreational water exposure associated with primary amoebic meningioencephalitis in the United States. Um, welcome, Dr. Cope. Thank you for having me. So primary amoebic uh, meningoencephalitis, or PAM, is caused by an amoeba. What's an amoeba? What makes a difference from, say, a virus or a bacterium?
1: Um, so an amoeba is a, a microspo- microscopic uh, single-celled organism. And um, what makes it different from, from a bacteria is that it's uh, classified as a eukaryote. Um, and this makes it different from bacteria, uh, which are called, which are considered prokaryotes, um, in that eukaryotes uh, are classified that way because they have a nucleus. So that's what makes them uh, different from a, from a bacteria. Uh,
0: so it just gives a little tiny bit of a rundown on a cell. So what is, what is a nucleus? Where does it fit into a cell that um, matters?
1: So the nuclei, a nucleus is where the um, kind of the genetic information of a cell is housed. The, and in this case, for Niglaria
0: phallarii, which is the amoeba, um, it's the, the DNA of the cell. Okay, so where is this amoeba usually found? So amoebas
1: are commonly found in the environment, and this one in particular, Niglaria phallarii, likes warm, fresh water. Uh, but it can also be found in
0: soil. And apparently its existence has been known about since the 1970s. Um, Did it emerge or was it just discovered uh, at that time?
1: Uh, so it was. It's likely that it was just discovered, um, and, and not that it necessarily emerged right at that time. Uh, the first case of primary amoebic meningoencephalitis, or PAM, was identified in the 1960s in Australia, and um, it was found to be caused by a new type of amoeba that they uh, went on to call Niglaria fowleri, and that was after one of the researchers who first described it, Dr. Fowler, um, and since. Niglaria fowleri was first identified. Um, actually, researchers went back retrospectively then um, to identify cases of PAM that happened prior to that. So there was one study in, um, in the U.S. out of Virginia where they, they used um, pathology records from people who had died previously of maybe unknown causes, and they were actually able to retrospectively identify them as PAM cases. Uh, so yeah, we think PAM probably has been around um, prior to when it was first described. And it was really just, um, you know, our ability to kind of uh, detect it and describe it. And also because it's, you know, a, it's a rare infection, you know, it would have taken, you know, a while for it to be detected because of that.
0: We've been reading a lot about this um, amoeba in the news over the last um, two or three years or so. Why are public health officials concerned about it?
1: Well, um, because it's such a... uh highly fatal uh, infection. You know, most people unfortunately die from this infection. We, you know, consider it a high consequence pathogen because of that. Um, And so because of the implications of getting this infection, um, that's why it it is is of concern to public health officials, because um, the outcome can be so severe. That's
0: terrifying. Um, How common is
1: it? Well, fortunately, Pam appears to appears to be a, a rare illness with only a few cases reported each year. Um, so it's fortunate because the because most cases do result in death. That 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 it is otherwise um, a rare illness. Um, and and there's also likely cases that go unrecognized because it causes. Uh, meningoencephalitis, which has a lot of different um, uh, infectious causes as well as non-infectious causes. Um, but even so, even if there are unrecognized PAM cases, um, we don't think that this is a big number. So overall, um, this appears to be a, a, a rare disease.
0: Is it possible to be a little more specific? How how rare is rare? Sure. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um,
1: So, in the United States, we've had, we've been tracking PAM cases since 1962. And um, we've had anywhere from, uh, we've had years where there's been no cases reported, so zero cases. And the most we've ever had reported in a year is eight cases. So, we, um, yeah, so the range is zero to eight cases. And since 1962 um, through 2019, which is our current data, there have been, 145 cases reported total in the United States.
0: Okay, so it is pretty rare, but tragic for the unfortunate 142 people. Um, So encephalitis usually refers to an infection of the brain, as you just said. Um, How does this pathogen even get to the brain in the first place?
1: Yes, yeah, so encephalitis, um, just to, to elaborate a little bit more on that, that's kind of a general clinical term, um, meaning inflammation of the brain. Um, and the other term to kind of define as well is, is meningitis, which is referring to inflammation of the spinal cord. So in in this infection, primary amoebic meningoencephalitis, you have a kind of a combination of, of both of them. Um, and like I said, they can be caused by many types of infections as well as non-infectious causes. So, um, in the case of Pam, it it causes like it causes both. Um, and the way this happens is when. Um, Niglaria fowleri is in the water, and if someone um, gets water that contains this amoeba up their nose, um, that's uh, when the amoeba has an opportunity to use. Um, uh, it gets, uses the nerve ending, endings of the olfactory nerve, um, which actually is it penetrates down through the skull into the top of the nose, um, and this is the nerve that helps with your sense of smell. Um, And this is what the amoeba uses to gain access to the brain.
0: Uh, uh, There's been some discussion that with COVID, um, people might be able to get it through their eyes. Could this happen with this amoeba?
1: So for this specific amoeba, Niglaria fowleri, it's not known to to, um, to uh, infect people via the eye. Um, there is another type of amoeba that does cause an eye infection, um, but
0: that's not this one, Niglaria fowleri. Okay. So that's just an eye infection, not a brain infection. Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, apparently this amoeba can change its shape and appearance in different environments. Um, why does it do that, and how is that possible? So, correct.
1: Nyglaryophyllarii does have um, three different forms that it can take. And so the first is the trophozoite, and this is kind of its active uh, feeding form, um, and it's, a, it's the form that, that causes infections as well. Um then there is a flagellated form, and this is a very transient form, and it will use this form um, when um, food becomes scarce or uh, just the general conditions of the environment are really are not conducive to, you know, to survival, and so it'll form a flagella that allows it to move to a new location. And then the third form um, is the cyst, and this is the really hardy form um, that can allow it to really um, survive harsh conditions.
0: Uh, so, can you elaborate a little bit on why this is important? Sure. I think the the, um, the one
1: to consider and the, the importance of it is the cyst form. And I think, um, you know, this is what allows niglaria fowleri uh, to survive harsh conditions um, like cold temperatures. Um, you know, niglaria fowleri really likes warm warm water temperatures, and so... You know, if the temperatures cool, um, the cyst, uh, it will insist, and this might allow it to, say, hide out in the sediment of a lake or something over the winter um, and, that, and can survive there until um, the water begins to warm again.
0: How is a person diagnosed? I mean, how do clinicians isolate this from other possible causes? I think you mentioned earlier that um, it's sometimes an issue.
1: Yeah. I, it, so, meningoencephalitis, like I said earlier, is um, is just a general clinical term, and it has a lot of different causes, um, both infectious and non-infectious. And there are causes that are a lot more common than, than niglaria fowleri. So, um, it, it might not be something that um, a doctor is initially thinking about when they see a patient that they think might have meningitis. Um, one of the clues that they might use is if they... Um, They might be thinking about it more, say, in the the summertime when it is warmer and when we tend to see these cases. And if they ask the patient about possible water exposures, have you been to the lake? Have you been swimming lately? Um, That might clue them in to the possibility of this infection. And when they're thinking about it, then the way they're going to try to make the diagnosis is um, with any type of meningitis, you're, you're going to want to get a, a sample of the patient's um, cerebral spinal fluid, um, which is the fluid that kind of surrounds the brain and spinal cord. Um, and this would be something if you, people have heard of a spinal tap or a lumbar puncture. That's how you get spinal fluid from someone. And so it's. Almost all cases of meningitis, you're going to get a sample of spinal fluid. And the first way you can try to make the diagnosis of niglaria is actually by observing, um, looking at the spinal fluid under the microscope. Um, and you can potentially observe um, the motile trophozoite form of, of the amoeba. So you can actually see the amoeba moving in the spinal fluid. Um, however, this does take some um you know, uh, some expertise um, from the person looking under at, at the spinal fluid under the microscope. And, or sometimes there might not, not be enough amoebas there for 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 the um, microbiologist to see. So um, really the gold standard now for making the diagnosis is um, a PCR test. So polymerase chain reaction, um, which is a test that can detect the DNA of the amoeba in the spinal fluid. And that's a test we have here at CDC. And it's in a couple of other places around the country and the spinal fluid can be sent there to do that testing.
0: So, if it's diagnosed, it's more just for elimination of other things, right? Because it's fatal. <laughs> I'm, there's no real treatment for it. Is that right? Well, um, while it is fatal
1: in most cases, there are a handful of survivors, and there are some um, there are some uh, medications that can, or some treatment that can be tried. Um, it's not always successful. But we do think that the earlier the diagnosis is made, um, there is a a better opportunity for survival if if treatment is given.
0: Your paper is about exposures to waterborne disease during recreational activities. How are these different from other types of exposure pathways and, and what are the other ways?
1: yeah so uh, we think this is this infection is always caused by some sort of water exposure it's just what type of water um, we're talking about and the most common type of water exposure we see is recreational water exposure, meaning um, exposure in lakes, rivers, streams, basically any water that's not been treated. Um, so this does distinguish it from, say, uh, swimming pool water, which um, swimming pool water is filtered and disinfected. Um, so a well-maintained and disinfected swimming pool should not be a risk factor for for this amoebic infection. Um, But yeah, so untreated recreational water exposure is the most common type of water exposure um, leading to this infection. And kind of a classic scenario, like something you'll see as you know, like a a medical medical school or medical board test question is um, say a child or a teenager who's recently been swimming at the lake or water skiing or wakeboarding. and they come in a few days later with headache and fever, um, and that that's kind of a classic uh, scenario for for thinking about um, this amoebic infection. So, the other types of water exposures that we've seen um, more recently um, are in people who have had um, who have used um, tap water for either nasal or sinus rinsing, whether that's for um, therapeutic or religious reasons. So. Um, a lot of people who suffer from kind of chronic nasal congestion, from allergies or other reasons, um, will, will do... Uh, nasal or sinus rinsing using like a neti pot or some other sort of device to kind of clean out their sinuses. Um, And then there's also people who do it for religious reasons. Um, They'll do like a cleansing practice that includes nasal rinsing um, prior to to prayer. Um, And we have seen a few cases associated with this use of water um, in people who use tap water without doing additional treatment um, for nasal rinsing. And then one other one that's a little bit different is this amoeba actually can thrive in hot spring water. Um, And so we have seen cases um, associated with people um, who have used hot springs um, and
0: gotten water up their nose that way. Hot springs like spa type of hot springs or... So usually natural hot springs. Um, so,
1: you know, yeah, not like a hot tub, because again, that would be similar to, uh, say, a swimming pool. Hopefully the hot tub is, you know, being well maintained and, and, um, and disinfected. Um, so yeah, I'm referring more to natural hot springs.
0: Yes, I guess I'm thinking of um, some, like people go to what they used to call take the waters um, to natural springs that are hot. Like I know there's one in Budapest, there's some in Canada. I'm sure there's some all over the world here in this country. Um, so those could potentially be a risk.
1: Yeah, any any um, hot spring water that's, you know, not having any additional treatment done to it um, could potentially be a risk,
0: correct? Okay, so I'm a little bit confused about the tap water. Isn't tap water treated?
1: Yeah, well, tap water, um, you know, is treated, per, you know, particularly in the United States, our tap water is very safe. Um, however, the treat it is treated to be um, safe for drinking, so consuming water. Um, but if you're using water, the tap water in like more sensitive areas of the body, say like for, for nasal or sinus rinsing, or um, some people use water to rinse their contact lenses, which is also not good because then that's going in your eye. Um Those are uses of tap water, which actually could um, uh, cause infections. So what you're thinking about is more, um, you know, kind of what we thought about back in the day when our water wasn't as safe, you know, with um, uh, fecal contamination. So um, things that cause more diarrheal illness. Um, But in this case, we're talking about, um, you know, organisms like amoebas, and that can still exist, even in they can
0: still be in, um, in treated tap water. Okay. So, so, so back to the nasal rinsing. Um, they sell um, saline solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that safe to use? That.
1: Yeah. So, what we recommend if you are someone who does uh, nasal rinsing um, using a neti pot or some other or similar type device. Um, and you're, and you're gonna, if, this would be for people who might be making their own saline solution, say with a packet of, um, um, you know, mixing it that needs to be mixed with water. Um, we recommend that you, I think the easiest thing to do, a lot of people might find to be the easiest thing to do would be to buy distilled or sterile water, um, and use that type of water to make your saline solution. Um, the other thing that you can do is you can use tap water that you boil first and then you let it cool. Um, and you can use that water as well. Those are probably the most common ways to make your tap water, um, or to you know, to make nasal rinsing safer from this perspective.
0: Okay, but the manufactured um, little bottles of saline solution that you just sort of squirt up your nose occasionally, those are safe. I believe
1: so. Um, if they're yeah, manufactured specifically for that reason, that's probably um, a product that you know, is sterile. You know, before you open it, it's going to be a sterile solution.
0: What did you do in your study if a patient didn't know when or where they were exposed or a family member didn't know?
1: So, um, yeah, for some cases, um, when we didn't know when they were exposed, um, we were able to use the date that they became ill or the date that they died to calculate the date that they were likely exposed, because we do know the average time from when people are exposed to when they become ill is about five days, and then we know... um, the average time from when they become ill to when they die is also about five days. So we're able to use that data to estimate when they were um, likely exposed. Um, for people that, say, had reported multiple exposures, um, if all of those exposures were in within a 50-mile radius, for example, say they went swimming at a couple different lakes, but they were all within the same park, um, we were able to include uh, that exposure location as the center of that 50-mile radius, um, since the conditions probably didn't differ very much among those uh, different swimming sites. Um, but unfortunately, if we didn't have any of that information, um, we weren't able to include uh, those cases in this particular analysis.
0: So your study analyzed 120 PAM cases that occurred from 1978 to 2018. What specifically were you looking for and why did you start at that date?
1: So we had observed anecdotally over the last few decades, um, or mostly actually over the last decade or so, that we were starting to hear about cases happening in states that really had never reported them before. I think the most notable example is the cases that we heard that happened in Minnesota. Um, This was really an infection that had um, historically only been reported from um, the southern one-third of the United States or the southern tier, as we call it, which includes, you know, all the way in the east over here in Georgia, all the way over to, say, Arizona and Southern California and then all the states in the in between. That's kind of what we consider the southern tier. So really... Um, you know, states that tend to have warmer weather and, and hotter summers, that's really where we were seeing these cases, at least um, historically. Um, but when we started hearing um, reports coming out of states, say, like Minnesota, um, that, you know, certainly uh, had us, got us a little bit concerned. And what we wanted to do then with this analysis is see if we could show any trends in cases in the United States over the last 40 years and whether we could uh, find the environmental data about temperatures to help explain those trends. Um, Really what we wanted to to get the data to support kind of what we were anecdotally seeing. Um, The reason for this time period is, um, even though we've tracked cases going back to 1962, um, the late 70s was really when... um, Uh, We established a laboratory at CDC that was able to better um, uh, identify and diagnose these infections. Um, So that's kind of why we started with that time period, because before that, it was harder to make the diagnosis.
0: What did you find um, and did any of your findings surprise you? Well, I'll say what we
1: – the two things we focused on um, in this analysis were, were where the PAM cases occurred, as in what latitude, um, so how far north or south, and then uh, we also looked at what the air temperature was around the time that they occurred. And so, in terms of the location, we found that PAM cases appeared to be trending northwards over the time period. Um Although we did find, we also looked at um, just the sheer number of cases uh, happening each year, and we found that those did not increase over time. So the number of cases did not, but the location, um, as far as how far north they were occurring, did uh, trend north. Um Five out of the six cases that were reported from the Midwest region um, occurred after 2010, so really kind of that last decade that we've been looking at. Um, These included two cases in Kansas, two cases in Minnesota, and one case in Indiana. Um, We, you know, as I said before, we really, this has historically been cases um, seen in the southern U.S., and we didn't see changes in that. We continue to see most of the cases coming from there. Um, But we did see that the range of the cases, meaning how far north they occurred, has increased over time. Um, And overall, I'd say, um, since I, you know, these anecdotal case, you know, cases being reported from from northern states was kind of what spurred this this analysis. Um, we weren't necessarily surprised by our findings, but we were really glad to to have this more concrete data
0: behind uh, to show show these trends. Why is um, it expanding northward?
1: So. There's a couple reasons that that might be behind uh, what we're seeing. Um, so I mentioned we also looked at air temperature. So we saw that the temperatures on the days that patients were exposed um, were higher than the average temperatures over the past 20 years for those locations. Um, so so warming temperatures. Um, this suggests that these rising temperatures could actually, so one thing they might explain is um, changing how people participate in recreational water activities. So if it was hotter that year, that may have driven more people to seek out, you know relief um, at the nearby lake. And so maybe more people were actually swimming um, at that time. And then the other thing is what we you know, when we talk about this amoeba and what it likes, we know it likes warm water. So um, increasing temperatures, increasing air temperatures leading to increasing water temperatures might be changing the ecology of this amoeba and allowing it to thrive.
0: I'm finding it interesting that um, it has expanded northward, but number of cases haven't expanded. That seems sort of a dichotomy to me. Do you have any idea why? It's not just adding? I mean, it seems like it would be uh, and then subtracting from the South if it's not adding numbers. Yeah,
1: it's hard to explain. And I think when um, when you're talking about um, a rare infection like this where we have so few data points to go on, um, you know, it's it, it, we might not be, you know, it might take more um, time to really start to see, um, uh, you know, uh, see these trends so yeah, it's hard to say I mean I, I, I'm glad we're not seeing increase in cases um, because it is such a um, um, scary infection but yeah for right now we're just seeing um, changes in you know in the geographic location but not necessarily in the numbers.
0: So why don't you give us some highlights of your study? Well I think the main highlights are
1: that um, you know this being, um, a um, amoeba that, that that thrives in warm weather um, you know it, it's interesting to see that we are seeing this more um, uh, northward um, trend in in the location of cases and where they where they are exposed um, you know um, it's something we definitely want to keep an eye on and it's a reason why we are going to continue to track this infection especially in light of um, you know the The trends we're seeing in the climate in general.
0: What were some of the challenges of the study? I mean, you mentioned a couple, but uh, what do you perceive as the main challenges of finding what you needed to find?
1: Yeah, the main challenge is um, kind of what I alluded to before. Um, It's kind of, it's the it's the good and bad of this. So I, I mentioned this is, you know, we only have a few cases reported each year, which I think, fortunately, we don't see a lot of cases because it is such a deadly infection. But it also makes it harder to study because, you know, we have so few data points to work from. Um, so so that's the just in any time we're trying to learn more about Niglaria um, fowleri and and primary amoebic meningoencephalitis, that's kind of what we're always up against is just um, the few cases that, that we have to work with. Um, A couple other things, um, you know, we discussed before that some cases, we didn't have the full details on the date and location of exposure, Um, so I think that's something we've been able to improve on. A lot of the ones that we didn't have the full data on were older cases, and so, you know, in more recent cases, we've been actually able to gather a lot of that data. And then we did have to rely on secondary data sources from weather stations to um, gather information on the temperature uh, for, the, um, for the date and location of the exposures. And, you know, these aren't the exact location where the exposure occurred. And we also had to use air temperature, um, which might not uh, be the same, obviously, as the water temperature, although we expect that they are related, that when the air is warmer, that leads to, to warmer water temperatures.
0: What future studies or public health actions do you personally hope to see?
1: So a couple of things I think we'd like to see um, as it relates to this infection is we'd really like to, to better understand what makes a body of water a higher risk for someone um, contracting PAM. Um, we, we think that, that there, there are some certain features, um, because we've had, um, we've had locations that have had more than one case associated with them, um, which when you think about, a, you know, uh, an infection that only, you know, has a few cases reported each year, to have them occur in the same place, that, that kind of tells you Something's going on there. Um, and so we'd really like to, um, maybe identify, say, the care, this, the, the specific characteristics of a lake that make it a higher risk for getting this infection. And that, you know, that would really take going beyond kind of our, um, epidemiology and clinical skill set, um, and, and getting more into like ecology and, and people who do, who do more, um, Study of the environment, um, but I think ultimately this would help um, help with our prevention messaging. So instead of just saying, "Be careful about getting water up your nose when you go, when you do any sort of um, recreational water activity in an untreated um, you know, in untreated recreational water like a lake," um, we could actually maybe tailor those messages a little bit more to, a, to specific types of lakes. Um, so, that's kind of a wish, you know, on our wish list. Um, the other thing I'd like to see is um, currently this uh, infection is only um, reportable in a handful of states, meaning that it's mandatory that, um, that it be reported to, the, to state public health authorities. Um, so, I'd like to see it um, reportable in more states. Um, that's not to say that I don't think we hear about all the cases that are identified, but I do think when a, when a disease becomes um, reportable to public health, it does kind of raise the profile of that, and it, it makes um, physicians and other healthcare care providers um, more aware uh, of the infection.
0: What can people do to protect themselves against getting this amoeba?
1: So the main overarching thing to, to do to protect yourself is, is just limiting the amount and limiting water going up your nose. And so, um, you know, there are a couple of ways you can do that. I mean, the, the kind of the, safest way is just to kind of avoid the activities that'll get water up your nose. Um, But, you know, we recognize that, you know, swimming in lakes, water skiing, you know, doing these types of things are are fun. And and so not everyone, you know, people want to do these activities. And so, Anything you can do to limit the amount of water that might go up your nose while you're participating in those activities. So um, whether that's holding your nose shut, um, using nose clips, or just keeping your head above the water when you're taking part in these types of activities um, when you're in uh, warm, untreated, fresh water. Um, Another situation we talked about earlier, you know, related to hot springs, Um, when if you're someone who's going to be, say, you know, using a hot spring, um, you know, just keep your head above the water. And I think that's easy enough for say adults to do, cause I feel like adults are just kind of soaking in the, in the hot spring. But I think the to, paying attention to, to children in hot springs and um, cause they're probably likely to do more activities that might get water up their nose, um, you know, just watching kids in those situations. Um, and then just paying attention, you know, Consider avoiding water-related activities in warm, fresh water um, you know, during a heat wave when the water temperature is going to be especially high. Um, and then when, you, when we talk about um, nasal and sinus rinsing, we talked a little bit about um, how you need to consider the water you're using. Um, so whether that's buying the specific product as a, um, you know, as you mentioned, a prepared nasal um, saline product or using distilled or sterile water that you buy to prepare your saline um, solution, or consider boiling your water um, and letting it cool and then using that water. Um, Those are kind of our main prevention messages.
0: Going back earlier, is this amoeba like settled in the bottom, so stirring up the water in the bottom of the lake? Does that have an impact or is it just sort of floating around in the water willy-nilly anyway? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I, I, I know that is something, um, I, I you know, people, that is another prevention message that's out there. Um, I don't know that I, you know, I think that, you know, if you can avoid stirring up the sediment, that's probably a good practice. But I do think that the water, um, the, the amoeba can also just be in the water column and not necessarily just in the sediment. And so um, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to just say that 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 um, taking that action alone would would prevent it. So it's really going to be focusing on limiting the amount of water going up the nose.
0: Right, but additionally, trying not to stir up the sediment at the bottoms probably would be helpful.
1: I think. I mean, I think it's 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 not going to hurt for sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, um, the COVID nineteen pandemic and all the behavior changes that it's caused have shifted trends in many diseases. Has it affected the incidence of PAM? Do you think?
1: You know that's um, that's hard to say, and I think just going back to what we've said before with PAM being um, being a rare. Um, rare disease. Um, it's just, it's harder to draw conclusions like that, especially just after based, based on, you know, one year's worth of data. What I can say is we really did see similar numbers last summer. Um, and so, you know, the summer, uh, of 2020 during the pandemic. And so, um, I, I don't think we can say, I think this is one instance where we, we can't necessarily say that there's been major changes due to COVID.
0: You're a Commissioned Corps officer at CDC. Um, tell us about that, what that means, and um, uh, something about your job and what you like about it, and how you became involved with this study. Sure. Yeah, I am a Commission Corps um, officer
1: in the U.S. Public Health Service, um, and that you know that means I'm kind of on duty 24/7 to respond to um, any urgent public health issues, and um, my specific role is as, the, um, as CDC's free um, living amoeba subject matter expert, and that, that does include Niglaria faleri, um, and I'll, you know, I get involved in, um, you know, we run a, a clinical consultation service, actually, where um, healthcare providers who suspect they have a patient with one of these amoebic infections can actually call CDC 24-7 and get a hold of of either one of our EIS officers or, or me to, um, you know, kind of, uh, run their case by us and, and get some advice on, you know, how to make the diagnosis and what treatment we recommend. Um, and so that, um, you know, that's a, 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 a part of my job. I really enjoy, I'm an infectious disease physician by training. And so, um, you know, getting to, um, work on these rare infections, you know, where if I was just, um, if I was an ID doc out in the community, just seeing all types of patients, I, I might never see one of these infections, but being here at CDC and focusing specifically on this, um, you know, I get to be involved, um, in almost, you know, all the infections that are identified of this type. And so that's, it's pretty cool. And it's, um, you know, as, uh, you know, for an ID um, person like me, um, it's, it's a really uh, uh, unique position to be in.
0: How have things changed for you personally since the beginning of the pandemic? Is what you're doing now different than a year ago? And what are you doing? <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't think any of us have... Um, uh, can say that nothing has changed in the last year. Um, I, uh, I, I, have different coworkers. They're, they're a good, a good deal younger than the ones that I had in the office, <laughs> um, working here from home with my family. Um, you know, looking back on a year ago, um, I, I, um, deployed out to the field, um, at the beginning of the COVID response. Um, I was involved in kind of the early, um, work that was going on at the quarantine stations and the airports to do the the screenings, um, in the flights coming from China. Um, and I also had the chance to go, um, uh, to help. Um, I was actually deployed to North Dakota, which is where I did my EIS training, um, at the beginning of my time with CDC. And, um, that was actually the first time I'd been out in the field, um, for a deployment since, um, since my kids were born. And so, um, while it was hard, you know, to leave, um, you know, it was also rewarding knowing that I was, um, helping in, you know, kind of the early days of the pandemic when there was so much that was unknown. Um, you know, a year, you know, a year into this now, um, my, my day job, my, my work in waterborne, um, you know, has been very much affected by COVID. We've brought a lot of um, our, my branch also works on on topics like hand washing and cleaning and disinfection, um, which obviously um, took, uh, you know, a lot of attention paid to that, obviously, during COVID. And so a lot of additional works come into our branch. Um, but that being said, we haven't Lost sight of waterborne infections because these things still happen, um, and I continue to work to track these amoebic infections, um, even um, in light of all the uh, all the other things going on with COVID. So,
0: yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Cope. Yeah, no, it's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the January 2021 article, Geographic Range of Recreational Water-Associated Primary Amoebic, Meningoencephalitis, United States, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.